A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we are excited to be here on a morning where we can uh, look forward to Christmas and uh, in many ways celebrate that moment in history. Pray this morning you give us uh, maybe a deeper perspective and uh, a renewed joy because of what we're celebrating by the power of your spirit. Amen. So you ready for Christmas? Christmas is kind of a mixed bag, isn't it? A lot of good things in Christmas, a lot of not so good things about Christmas. In fact, I want you to do a little mental exercise for me. Uh, on one side of your mind, I want you to list two or three good things about Christmas. All right? On the other side, I want you to list two or three bad things about Christmas. Okay, what are some of the good things? Family. Family. That has come first every time. So yeah, family's awesome. Christmas, what else? Decorations. Decorations? Yeah. As long as I don't have to put them up, they're great. <laughs> Somebody else. Memories. Memories? Okay. Music. Music. Food. Presents. Presents. Thank you. Yeah. What else? Tradition. Somebody said fruitcake. I told them they had it on the wrong side. <laughs> what are some of the bad things about Christmas? Fruitcake, yeah. Ba other bad? Waiting? Waking? Oh, weight gain. I know nothing about that. Thank you. Did you have to bring that up? <laughs> it's a mental block. <laughs> what else? Bad things. Shopping. Shopping. Presents. Not if you're a kid, man. Presents are on the good side. Wrapping them. Yeah, that's the bad side. But if you have kids, you make them do it. Or I did. Schedule. Family. Yeah, family ends up on both sides, doesn't it? And sometimes it's the same person. You notice that? What's that? Oh. <laughs> yeah, my kids are grown. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> she said assembly required. So, um, so here's the thing. This morning we're talking about joy. And the question I want us to wrestle with is how in the world, in the midst of all the chaos and the stress and the shopping and the cooking and the... Uh, 
pressure of Christmas, do you find joy? How does that happen? We have been doing a series where we're looking at the Advent candles. I know that seems kind of strange, but if you know the history of the Advent wreath or the Advent candles, it, it makes a little more sense. 1800s, a, a German missionary invented the candles. He was uh, in charge of a school, orphan kids, poor kids, and they were always asking him if Christmas was here. So he developed this wreath. It originally had 24 candles and um, four large ones. And the purpose of the wreath, wreath was to give the kids a big picture of Christmas. So those candles got identified uh, as hope and peace and love and joy. And there's different variations. And, and we thought, you know, if we can focus on those four things, it could give us a really good understanding of the big picture of Christmas. So this morning, we're going to talk about the whole issue of joy and why it is part, that candle is part of the Advent, Advent wreath. So how do you find joy in the midst of Christmas? I think one place we can go is we can listen to the proclamation of the angels because I think if we do, we discover kind of what's key to having Christmas joy. Uh, let's look back. We're going to focus in on verses 10 through 12, just three of the verses. But the angel said to them, uh, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. This word good news is kind of an interesting word. It's literally euangelion. Uh, what's the English word we get from that? Evangelism, actually, evangelical. All those are linked uh, to euangelion. Uh, evangelical, the movement we're part of, that's kind of got, that word has become tainted because of all the political stuff going on. Some people want to set it aside. But it harks back to this word euangelion. And, and normally in the scriptures, it's translated gospel. Gospel. And when I say gospel, what typically, what I think of, maybe what you think of, is the four spiritual laws, right? That's the gospel. That is not really what he's talking about here. Gospel is an interesting word. It is a reference to royal news. News about a king. Uh, uh, a proclamation about a king. Maybe they're being inaugurated, beginning their rule. You, you would send out gospel. You'd let everybody know. Maybe there, there was a great victory in battle and a runner would go back with, with Evangelion, with gospel, good news. It, it's royal news. So the angels show up and they're giving royal news. And, and this is really great news because it's going to cause great joy. So the question becomes, what is, what is joy? So I want us to do a word study on joy this morning, but I want to cheat a little bit. All right, the Bible Project, these guys I love who put out videos, they just came out with a video on a word study on joy. And I thought, we got we to gotta use that. So I'm going to cheat and you, we get to watch their understanding of joy. I want to chase a sidebar just for a moment this morning. That video comes from a website called The Bible Project. A couple guys, one of them, Tim Mackey, great Old Testament scholar. I want to give you an assignment and a challenge. The assignment is to check out 
the Bible Project. There you'll discover all kinds of videos on themes. You'll discover videos uh, related to books of the Bible. And they have podcasts that you can download that are conversations. I've been listening to them this last year. It's the best thing I've come across in, in a number of years. Man, I've learned more from those guys this year. It's just great stuff. Stuff I thought, man, how come I didn't know this? And it's really changing how I read my Bible. Just awesome stuff. So, so check out their website. It's worth it. Listen to their podcast. Uh, that's the assignment. The challenge is for you to go on your iPhone or smartphone, go to the app store and download an app called Read Scripture. It's put out by these guys and it'll help you read through the Bible in a year. And it has all the passages there and at the beginning of each book, they'll give you a little video that gives you an overview and an understanding of the major themes. They're just, they're great. And it would be an awesome way to, to spend some of your time this coming year understanding the scriptures more. They, they, they have an objective. They believe that the Bible is one unified story that uh, all points towards Jesus. And thus, they're really motivated to get people to read their Bibles. So assignment and challenge uh, do that. Uh, anyway, back to joy. Let's think a little more about this notion of joy. So joy is this emotion but it's not uh, just an emotion. It's tied to uh, an attitude and a perspective, a way of thinking. It's tied to your thinking and your will. When I think of joy, I like to think of a tree. You have a trunk of the tree, which represents uh, kind of your mind, your knowing, what, your, your perspective. Then you have the branches of your will, your attitude, what you choose to give focus on. And then as a result of those, on the ends of those branches are the fruit the leaves. And that's the emotion. And, and the thing is, you, you don't, your will doesn't have control of the emotion. I can't say to you, feel joy. Be joyful right now. Try it. Joy. Doesn't work very well, does it? Because we, we don't have control over our emotions. What we do have control over is our perspective, how we think, and our attitude, what we choose to focus on. And that's the key. We can choose a perspective and an attitude that results in this emotion of joy. Okay? Because it is an emotion. Now, most people will tell you that um, you're supposed to have joy despite your circumstances, or that joy transcends your circumstances, or that joy is not connected to your circumstances. I've actually concluded that's hogwash. Because I, I think joy is directly connected to your circumstances. That's why you feel joy. I mean, you have a good meal and it makes you happy. A good glass of wine makes you happy. You're in love with your spouse, it makes you happy. Your kids are doing well, it makes you happy. You get a promotion at work, it makes you happy, right? We are circumstantial creatures. Uh, um, and, and if we try to say that our joy isn't connected to our circumstances, uh, it makes us inauthentic or, or simply out of touch or totally unaware. You, you lose your job and you say, praise the Lord, I lost my job. You don't say that. And if you do, people just think you're nuts. You're out of touch. That's not real. You know, years ago, people used to go around saying, praise the Lord, praise the Lord about everything. It drove me nuts. Because it's inauthentic. 
So, well, wait a second. How then do we experience joy? Well, we've got to understand there's two kinds of circumstances, right? There's uh, our present circumstances. I put together a little drawing here. Our present circumstances and our current realities. And sometimes those are good and sometimes those are bad. And when there's good, they're good, it's easy to, to, to feel the expression of joy. When they're bad, it's not, not so easy. But, but our emotional response is still circumstantial. It's just that there's another set of circumstances. There are future circumstances and there are larger realities. And the question is, what are we going to put our focus or perspective on and what attitude we're going to choose and then what's the resulting emotion? So, put it this way, biblical joy is the emotional result of giving weight to future circumstances and larger realities rather than just simply present difficulties. So joy, the emotion, is always tied to circumstances, but the question is, is it tied to your present circumstances or is it tied to something bigger and larger and something future? And when it's tied to those future circumstances, then it takes faith and hope to experience. And what's interesting is you can experience joy and emotions that are the opposite of joy at the same time. Let me give you an example. Say you have a friend who's a, a follower of Jesus who dies suddenly. At that moment, because of your circumstances, you feel grief and you feel loss and you feel pain and you feel sorrow. Those are the present realities that you're experiencing. But if they're a believer, you know something beyond that. You know that there are future circumstances and larger realities at hand. You know that God still loves that person who died. You know that someday you will see that person again. You know that if they're a follower of Christ, they have eternal life. You know that at this moment, even though they're not with you, they're in the presence of God. And, and although that doesn't eliminate the grief and the sorrow and the pain you're feeling, it does create a deeper sense of joy that you have at the same time based on your hope. So joy always is tied to the circumstances. The question is, what circumstances are we going to give focus to or priority to or focus on? Just what's happening now? Or is there something deeper? I think the angels are saying, look, at Christmas, you got to understand the bigger picture of what's going on. And when you do, it will cause great joy. And not just ordinary joy, but humongous joy. I have a, a granddaughter named Emily, and uh, she's about three now. First Christmas. You know, first granddaughter, you buy her all these presents, and we're opening presents, and you know what she's doing? She's sleeping through the whole thing. <laughs> Second Christmas, we buy her all the presents, and this time she's awake, man, and she's opening presents, and she's really enamored with wrapping paper. Could care less about what's inside, man, the paper, the trapping, the tra man, that, that's just lighting her up. This year, it's a little different. She got some presents early. This year, she could care less about wrapping paper. She's figured out that inside the wrapping paper is a gift. And that's the substance of the thing. 
I think it's the same for us at Christmas. We, we get distracted in the chaos and the busyness uh, of all the, the, the wrappings of Christmas that we miss what's really going on, the substance of the thing. But when you grab a hold of the substance of the thing, that's what can give you joy. So if that's true, then the question is, what's the substance of the thing? What, what is it that the, the angels are really announcing? Well, let's go back to the verse. It says, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. This is a fascinating little phrase because he's talking about Bethlehem. That's where Jesus was born. And he calls it the town of David. But if you go into the Old Testament, the town of David is not Bethlehem. The town of David is always referred to as Jerusalem. There's only two times in Scripture it's called the town of David, here and another passage in the New Testament. And you go, what's with the angels? Did they just get it wrong? Why did they say this is the town of David? Well, they're trying to connect the birth of this child with David. David was born in Bethlehem, and in that sense, this is his town. But they're trying to identify this child with David because he was a precursor of the coming Messiah. And when they say Bethlehem, they're tying it to the prophetic tradition that goes back to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So look at that verse. It says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, uh, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, if you went over and saw Bethlehem today, it's, it's an Arab city. It is controlled by the Palestines. Uh, um, if you go there, people want to visit uh, Bethlehem because in the center of the town is a church called the Church of the Nativity that marks where they think Jesus was born. All right? So it's kind of a tourist trap, but back in Jesus' day, it wouldn't be on your top 10 list of tourist places you, you want to go. Back then, it was this little hamlet, this little village, way out of the way. But it was the place where the Messiah was to be born. Micah writes his prophecy 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene. And what's interesting to me about this all the Jewish religious scholars understood that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. So the Magi show up and they ask, hey, where's the Messiah going to be born? And all the Jewish scholars say, hey, Bethlehem. And there's rumors that the Messiah is coming. Bethlehem is five miles from Jerusalem, which is where all the religious scholars were. And how many of those religious scholars do you think walked five miles to check this out? None. And you go, why not? They couldn't be bothered. They were too busy. They were too distracted. Five miles, that's, that's half a day's walk. And because they can't be bothered, they miss one of the most important events in the history of mankind. And it was just happening down the road. And they didn't go. So the angels show up, and they're linking this event to David, who's a precursor of the Messiah. They're linking it to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. They're trying to say, look, this event that's taking place is part of the larger story of the Scriptures. So then the question becomes, why are they talking to shepherds? Right? 
I think shepherds have gotten a bad rap historically, right? What do we typically say about the shepherds? I've said this, Larry said this, this is how it usually goes. The shepherds were, were kind of dishonest, dirty, unclean, marginalized, the outcasts of society. Uh, you wanted nothing to do with, with, with shepherds. They were looked down upon. They couldn't even testify in court. Yet that's who the gospel's for. Great point, right? It is, but it's just, I don't think it's true for these shepherds. As I've done a little more research, I think, and I think most scholars believe, that these shepherds were temple shepherds. In other words, Bethlehem is five miles from Jerusalem. In Jerusalem is this great temple where all the sacrifices are made. If you're going to make sacrifices, you need animals to sacrifice. Two lambs were sacrificed at that temple every day. That means over 700 lambs a year. Where do you get 700 lambs to sacrifice? Well, you have to have pretty big flocks. And not only that, at Passover, you need thousands of lambs. Where did they get them? Well, I think there were fields all around and near Bethlehem where there were temple flocks. Animals raised to be sacrificed at the temple. And I think these shepherds were specially trained and purified and set apart to take care of those flocks. And what they would do is when a lamb would be born, they, they would evaluate the lamb to see if it was without blemish. Because if it was without blemish, then it could be used as a sacrifice. If it was blemished, then it would be rejected and sent back for common purposes. These are special shepherds. Now, we also know that just outside the town of Bethlehem was a place called the Watchtower of the Flock. In Hebrew, it's Migdal Eder. And there's actually a place, we think maybe it looks something like this. It was a watchtower over which they could see the flock. Um, and what would happen is when a ewe, a, a, a mother sheep, was pregnant and about to give birth, they would take that ewe and bring it to the watchtower of the flock. And there happened to be a cave underneath, kind of a stall, where they would put the ewe until she gave birth. And once she gave birth, they'd evaluate the lamb. And if it was perfect and able to be used as a sacrifice, they would take that lamb and wrap it in cloths and let it lay down until it settled down. And then it would be taken off to the temple as a sacrifice. There are Jewish scholars that believe the Messiah was going to be born at the watchtower of the flock. So when the angels show up to the shepherds and say, hey, in the town of David in Bethlehem, a Savior is born, being born to you. He, he is Christ the Lord. Then they say what? And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths in a manger. And they don't give any instructions where to find this baby because the shepherds already knew he would be at the watchtower 
of the flock. And the word translated manger in Luke chapter 13, it's not... Tra- we, we have this very English understanding of the nativity and the crush. You know, it's kind of like an English barn and a wood manger. Uh, Jesus was probably born in a cave. And the manger probably wasn't of wood. In fact, the word for manger in Luke 13 is translated stall. A place where you would keep animals. So the shepherds head off to Migdal Eder because they know this child is being born who is the Lamb of God who's going to be an unblemished sacrifice. So John chapter 1 verse 29 when the, uh, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming toward him he says look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All this imagery, placing Jesus into the larger story of the Bible. Something huge is going on here. You know, it's interesting, if you or I had been there when Jesus was born, it would have seemed so ordinary to us. I have a daughter, Sarah, who is an OBGYN resident. She works in Brooklyn at a hospital there called Lincoln. It serves a very poor population. It's incredibly busy. She's two and a half years in. During your residency, you're supposed to have delivered 200 babies. She's uh, over 400 right now. Okay? Busy place. She's delivered six babies where their moms didn't even know they were pregnant. There's not a lot of prenatal care going on in the Bronx. All right? I asked her, you know, or if I asked her and said, you know, is it very angelic when a baby is born? Is it very peaceful? She said, uh, no. (laughs) It's kind of really gross. There's screaming and there's fluids and there's smells and there's, everybody's tense and scared and nervous and, and at the end, there's a little bit of joy. That's birth. And if we had been there that day, that, that, uh, Mary had to be scared out of her mind. Joseph didn't know what the heck was going on. There was screaming. There was fluids. There was, there's, just, there's no angels hovering above. There's no soft music. There's no mysterious lights. It's just a baby being born. Kind of ordinary. Yet, this baby is incredible. Henry Nouwen talks about the best Christmas scene he's ever uh, beheld. There was a little boy named Anthony in the church who brought up um, these, these wooden figures, no bigger than a hand, evidently from India. One of a poor woman, one of a poor man, one of a baby. They, they, they didn't have eyes or nose or mouths. They just were, were very primitive figures. They set them up and then they took a light and they shined that light on them and on the back wall of the sanctuary they cast these huge shadows. That's what's happening. This ordinary thing, this birth of this child in this cave is this huge thing taking place. A cosmic event. 
And the angels describe this child in an interesting way. They, they say that he's a savior, that he's the Messiah or Christ, and that he's Lord. Uh, savior, Messiah, Christ. The, that, that is royal words. They, they, those three words were used in that day as kind of the royal liturgy to describe Caesar, right? He was the one who was the savior. He was the one who was the Christos or the king. He, he was the one who was claiming to be God. Yet the angel said, no, 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 it's not Caesar. It's this child. Interesting words to describe him, right? Savior is just uh, uh, one that delivers his people from danger. And the Jews, when they heard about a Savior or were looking for a Savior, they took the Savior and they made him too small because what they wanted the salvation to be that the Savior would be was simply political freedom. After all, they were living under the boot of Rome. They were oppressed. They were taken advantage of. They were, they were waiting for a Savior who would set them free and set the political stage aright. And that was way too small because something grander is going on here. When we think of a Savior, I think sometimes we make the salvation that Jesus brings too small as well. We, we just think of it in spiritual terms. Jesus came to restore for us a relationship with God, which he did. And we think about the fact that he gives us peace and meaning and forgiveness. And we think, oh, you know, if I just pray this prayer to him, I get to run up at the end. One, that's really not the gospel. We don't run off to heaven. Eventually, heaven comes here. But that's too small. Do you know, all those things are true. We get a relationship with God. We get forgiveness. We get meaning. We get purpose. But all of them are derivative, come out of the larger thing that is going on, the greater salvation that this child is bringing. When Jesus dies on the cross, what he's doing is he's defeating all evil. He's defeating the adversary, Satan. He, he's overcoming death. He's bringing about restoration for the whole creation. His salvation is cosmic, not just personal. It is personal, but it's personal because of the cosmic thing happening. It's bigger than we ever imagined. Not only is he the Savior, but he says that he's the Messiah, or literally in Greek, Christos, Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. It's a title. The word means the anointed one. It means that he is the anointed one, the one who is anointed as king. Assignment for you. Go through your New Testament. Every time you see Christ, cross it out and put king. Because that's what the word means. And it's great to see Jesus as your Savior. He's referred to that way 16 times in the New Testament. But he's referred to as Lord over 400. As king. As master. And there, there is a fundamental difference between a Savior and a king. When we talk of him as Savior, it's all about us. When we talk about him as king, it's all about him. When we see him as Savior, an interaction with the Savior is a one-time event they save you. But when we begin to see him as king, we realize that it's an ongoing relationship. Kings are different than saviors. Kings have agendas. Kings want to rule. Kings exercise authority. Kings demand allegiance and loyalty. 
Kings want you to live for something bigger than yourself. Kings have armies. Kings expect their subjects to lay down their life for the king and the kingdom. When you understand that Jesus is king, it's, you understand that following him is more than simply praying a little prayer. It's a turning over of your very life. Giving him everything. All. So he's savior, he's king, and then he is called Lord. And, and when that word is used to describe this child, I'm absolutely certain the shepherds began to scratch their heads. Because the word Lord is a reference to Yahweh, is a reference to God. <laughs> and what the angels are saying, not only is he a savior and king, but this, this little child, this little baby is God. Come in the flesh. And suddenly you're confronted with the, the paradox and the mystery of Christmas. God come in the flesh. They expected a savior. They expected a Christ, a king. <laughs> Nobody was expecting God. Dorothy Sayers is a famous English author, and she wrote a number of things, but part of it is she wrote a number of novels, detective novels. And the main character in the novels was a man named Lord Peter Whimsy. Uh, in the 1930s, he was an aristocrat. He solved all these crimes. He was a bachelor. He, he was kind of a curmudgeon. He was broken. He was hard to get along with. But he was brilliant. About halfway into this series, suddenly a new character appears, a, 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 a woman named Harriet Vane. And Harriet Vane is kind of an interesting woman. She was the first woman in the story to graduate from Oxford, and she was a mystery writer. And she comes in the story, and she falls in love with Lord Peter Whimsey. And when she does, he begins to change. Her love heals him. Now, those people who are very familiar with Dorothy Sayers realized that what she did at that moment is she wrote herself into her story. Dorothy Sayers was the first woman to graduate from Oxford. Dorothy Sayers was a mystery writer. So she just wrote herself in. Do you know with the birth of this child, God is writing himself into the story? And he's writing himself into the story because he's fallen in love with us. And he wants to heal us and to fix the world. And the only way he can really do that is to become part of the story. The only way he can truly be savior and king is if he's part of the story. And when you begin to understand that, then you begin to understand why the angels say, hey, I have good news, royal news that will cause great joy because the Savior, the King, God himself has come. 
how could you not respond with joy? One last thing. Don't want you to miss two little words in this passage. It says, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. Catch the next two words. To you. See, the question at Christmas, is this child my Savior? Is he my King? Is he my Lord? Is this child your Savior, your King, your Lord? You, you see, Jesus really is the cause of joy at Christmas, but only if you know him. This morning we're going to light the fourth candle of Advent, which is the candle of joy. These candles all interconnect with one another. We, we start with the candle of hope, and that's when you're looking forward to, with expectation for what God is going to do and how he's going to arrive and break into this world. Then you have the candle of peace, and that's what happens when, when, when he does come because what he brings is shalom. He, he begins to bring his kingdom, and we begin to look forward to the ultimate restoration when shalom, when everything is made right and as it should be. And then we have the candle of love because we know that the reason he brings shalom is because he loves us. He loves his creation. And once we understand hope and peace and love, the response has to be one of joy. How could it not be? So this morning, we light the candle of joy. Would you stand with me? We're going to read together Revelation chapter 21 where we get this great description of larger realities and future circumstance. Read with me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the older order of things has passed away. I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Isaac Watts was uh, probably the most prolific writer of hymns in his day. He's known for some of the most popular hymns, things like When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And his most popular hymn we sing at Christmas time, Joy to the World. 
Although it really wasn't written as a Christmas hymn, it was written as a hymn marking, looking forward to the second coming of Christ. But it fits well at Christmas. When Watts was born, his dad was in prison for being a nonconformist pastor in a culture that demanded allegiance to the Church of Christ, the Church of England, sorry. When he was 15, Watts contracted smallpox and remained sickly and in poor health his entire life. Due to his health issues, he stood only five feet tall, it was very short, had an oversized head and a large nose which gave, which gave him this grotesque appearance. Watts loved writing and wanted to go to college to pursue education, but because he was part of the nonconformist church movement, he wasn't allowed to attend any of the universities in England. As a young adult, Watts fell in love with a young woman that he wanted to marry. Her response was this, I love the jewels, but I can't stand the jewelry box that holds those gems. She just couldn't get it past his appearance. Watts went on to write musical poetry, though it was controversial at the time. At that time, the music in churches was simply psalms or uh, quotations of scripture. Watts added lines that reflected his own experience with God and the world around him. And this led to an uproar. In fact, uh, some people described Watts' music as a disturbance and heretical. This morning, we're going to sing the song Isaac wrote called Joy to the World. 